Okay, it's an honor to be with you this morning. We're going to start a very long journey this morning that could potentially take years. Uh, we want to exegetically study the book of Revelation. It's a book that's often avoided uh, from the pulpit. In fact, in my whole tenure as a Christian, I only remember the book of Revelation being exegetically preached through, in a sense, one time. And that was over at Tri-City Baptist Church years ago when Pastor Stan Fry went through the letters to the seven churches. That's the only time I ever remember this book being given specific attention in the church. And considering what John says and what Jesus says to the churches in this book, I find it amazing that it's often ignored. This book has relevance for Christians throughout all of history, but particularly, I believe, for those living in the last days. And I believe we're living in the last days, so we should study this book. It's going to be a long journey. It's going to take a couple verses at a time, or maybe a whole chapter, depending on the subject matter. I want to try to get through certain, get to certain points each Sunday, so I just want to ask your patience. Kids, it is an honor for us to have a church in which the children are not separated and go off to different places, and we all as families can meet together, but I'm going to have to ask you that you be on your best behavior. Some of this might run a little bit long and you might get a little uh, feisty and a little fidgety, but I just want to ask you to pay attention and, and, and try to learn something. And if you are, uh, uh, can't do anything else, just draw or something. But try to keep quiet because this is a very important testament and uh, you know we shouldn't be so concerned about time in our culture. If we were in Nepal or... Argentina, you know, they'd say, hey man, take three or four hours, get as far as you want to get today. Well, that's not what we do in our culture, and, we, and I understand that, but let's just see um, what God will do. So I have a certain goal today, I don't know if we'll meet it, but we'll try. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, it forms an interesting uh, bookend to that 66-book love letter. It's interesting to see the comparisons between Genesis and Revelation, and they fittingly sandwich all of God's special revelation between them. I'm going to look here at verse 1. Very quickly, just a simple phrase. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. My friends, there's a lot of truth uh, encapsulated in that small phrase. Does anybody know what the Greek word is that's translated revelation here? It's actually related to an English word we use. Does anybody know? A trivia question. It's apocalypsis. Apocalypse. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now you guys have heard that word and it's often associated with the end of the world or some kind of terrible tragedy that would be uh, Armageddon-like. But apocalypsis is just a Greek word that means unveiling or uncovering. This is the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ in His glory. Not as He was revealed at His first coming, the servant pictured in Isaiah 53, but as He was revealed to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, and again as He is revealed here, to John the Apostle. So this is the revealing or the uncovering of Jesus Christ. In fact, that English word apocalypse, the reason we use it in an end-of-the-world sense is because of its relationship 
to the book of Revelation. So it's one of those illusions in American culture that's inextricably tied to the Bible. Because in just a regular old usage, apocalypse has nothing to do with the end of the world. It just means an unveiling or an uncovering. There's a lot of those illusions in our culture. You know, we want God out of the schools. We want God out of the language. We want God out of government. But there's so many allusions to Scripture throughout the English language, we can't ever totally remove God from our culture, even if we want to. We, can't kick the, we can kick the Ten Commandments out all day long, but every one of us have it written on our heart and our conscience. So we can't get rid of that either. But this is the uncovering or the revealing of Jesus Christ. And if this is a revealing or an uncovering, then it implies that this book can be understood and it can be properly interpreted. A lot of Christians would avoid this book because they say, oh, there's a bunch of symbols. You know, maybe it's something that's already happened. Maybe it's in the future. We just can't understand it. All we need to know is Jesus is coming back and I'll just be safe and settled with that. I know a lot of brethren, solid brethren, that preach the gospel in the streets that would take that approach. But the very title of this book, in my opinion, implies that it can be understood, implies that it can be properly interpreted. And then when you see what it says about blessed are those that read it and he that hath an ear, let him hear, it means that we need to understand it. It's, it. it's not enough just to believe that Jesus is coming back. God gave us this revelation for a purpose. When I think of that term unveiling or, or the revelation of Christ, I'm reminded of what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2.4. He's talking about mockers in the last days. And it says over here, in chapter 3, I'm sorry, um, it says here in verse 3, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. My friends, this book is an answer to those mockers. It's an answer to us, the church of Jesus Christ, in response to the scoffers. You see, Christ Jesus is coming back. And when He comes back, He won't be a homeless bum on the street. He won't be laying in a manger. He will be a glorified King as He is revealed in this book. You know, if you go over, we're going to see in Revelation chapter 5 that Jesus Christ is the only one worthy to open that seven-sealed scroll or that seven-sealed book. My friends, that sealed book is the title deed to the earth. You know, Satan is the prince of, of this world and the prince of the power of the air and he was able to deceive Adam to take that title deed. But Jesus Christ being the kinsman redeemer is the rightful owner and possessor of this world. He holds the title deed and he'll, he is worthy to open it. And this book of Revelation shows us how Jesus Christ takes rightful possession of what was His. Rightful possession of what is His and what He purchased through His death on the cross and His resurrection. So it's important. Now, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not a series of revelations. So, you know, a lot of us just mistakenly would say, you know, let's turn to revelations. And I've said that many times. But friends, really, it's not. It is a revelation. It's inseparable. It goes together. It can't be compartmentalized. It all goes together. If you look at the seal judgments, the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet is the seven vials of God's wrath. You can't separate it. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, in His glory, 
in his prominence, in his role as king, brings judgment. And we can't divorce that reality. People don't want to view Jesus as a, as a judge, as one who will rule with a rod of iron. But that's written throughout the whole Bible. And we need to understand, we shouldn't lightly talk of Jesus Christ. Even John here, the one that laid on his bosom at the Last Supper, you're going to see, falls down at his feet. And this book, if anything, shows us the awe and the reverence we ought to have for our Savior. One that we often make light. Now, it's an interesting book. I want to provide you with a little background here. We know this is a revelation or an uncovering of Jesus Christ. It's often called the revelation of John the Apostle. It's not John's revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus given to Christ by God and revealed to John so that it could be revealed to us. This is a revelation of Christ. But John the Apostle, I don't know if you guys know much of the history, but he outlived all of the apostles and he was the only one that tradition says died a natural death. He lived to be a very old man. He suffered persecution. Some say he was thrown in a, boil, a boiling pot of oil and survived that. And we know here that he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos for his testimony. But he outlived all the apostles. And uh, in, in A.D. 70, the Romans came into Jerusalem under Titus, the, uh, the military general, and destroyed the city. The temple was destroyed. The Jews were scattered. There was great persecution. And the Christians in Jerusalem were therefore scattered. And it was at that time that John migrated north to Ephesus, which had kind of become a center of the early church. And John lived out his days as an elder, a wise man who had lived and walked with Jesus Christ that lived to, to, to counsel and to disciple the churches. That was his role. And it was in that role that he wrote all of his books that we find in the New Testament. You know, the Gospel of John was not written early like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was written toward the end of John's life, probably around, uh, you know, 85 A.D. We don't know for sure. It may have been written while he was on the Isle of Patmos. But it was written late, and it gave a retrospective picture of the life of Christ, highlighting His deity. Uh, and so it's an interesting gospel that's a little bit different than the others, and it brings all of them together into a nice uh, synoptic picture. But John wrote late. He was living at a time when apostasy began to creep into the churches. And so all of John's writings were in response in some way to false teaching. We can't ignore that context. You know, it was in a day when Jesus Christ's divinity was being questioned. It was a day when Gnosticism, this idea that people could have this special relationship with God through special knowledge and that they could attain a Christ consciousness it was when those ideas were creeping up and John wrote in response to that. That's why the Gospel of John is very clear from the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then if you look at the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, they were written to churches and faithful believers in a day when apostasy had crept up. 1st John differentiates between the false believer and the true believer. Second John is written to a faithful church dwelling in the midst of apostasy. Third John was written to a faithful believer who was within a, a, an apostate church or, or, or was under the leadership of an apostate pastor. And then Revelation reveals to us who Jesus really is 
in response to false teaching that had crept up. So if John was writing in days of apostasy, and we're living in days of apostasy, then we share a similar context. And in my opinion, that makes the book of Revelation and John's epistles all the more appropriate and worth studying. So that's an interesting historical tidbit. John probably wrote Revelation around A.D. 95. We know he was persecuted under the Roman emperor Domitian. Most of us know who Nero was. Nero was the Roman emperor that instituted the first persecution against Christians. And under Nero, Peter was, was killed. Uh, under, under Nero, Paul was beheaded. And, and, and a lot of the apostles met their demise. After that period, there was a short time of peace. But then came this emperor Domitian who instituted a second persecution against Christians. Now, there's a lot of information you can find online at Wikipedia. And I know we look up everything on Wikipedia, but I would encourage you to be very careful and understand that Wikipedia authors are very liberal and they present a very revisionist picture of history, particularly when it involves the church. And so if you go read the article on Domitian, the Roman Empire emperor, on Wikipedia, it says nothing about his persecution against Christians. And that was the thing that characterized his rule more than anything else. It says, well, he was a ruthful, a ruthless leader, but he was also a good autocrat and a good bureaucrat. And so it totally ignores one of the most important aspects of his reign, which I find amazing. So be careful with Wikipedia. That's kind of a side note. But Domitian was the brother of Titus, the Roman general who took his armies into Jerusalem in AD 70 and destroyed the city. Uh, Domitian's brother Titus had reigned as an emperor for a short time and he met an untimely death and then this man Domitian came into power. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie um, Gladiator. You know the Roman emperor in there, the, the femi, effeminate guy? That's what this Domitian was, just a, a sick man. You know, he was, he was very paranoid. He set himself up as a god. In fact, a decree was passed during his reign that he was to be addressed as our Lord and God, Emperor Domitian. The, the Roman Senate hated him. In fact, that character in Gladiator is kind of a mixture of different Roman emperors, you know, Caligula and Commodius and Domitian. So it's kind of a picture of several different persons. But that's kind of the idea you get. And he hated Christians. He, told, he instructed the people in the empire that if an earthquake or a famine or a natural disaster comes, we need to blame the Christians. He would have Christians arrested, and if they refused to renounce their faith, they were put to death on the spot. A lot of times he would test the Christians and ask them to take an oath before even interrogating them. And if they wouldn't take an oath, they immediately were put to death because he knew they wouldn't renounce their faith. There were a few pretty famous Christians from the New Testament that were killed during this second persecution. I don't know if you remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul preached in Athens on Mars Hill to the idol worshippers and the philosophers. And it says that after Paul left, you know, people mocked him, but a few people followed after. One of them was a man named Dionysius the Areopagite. He believed in Christ and followed Paul. This man was martyred during the second persecution. He was known as a very wise believer, one who gave counsel to others. He was killed. Some say Timothy met his demise during this period, that he was living in Ephesus and the crowds were already stirred up against the Christians because of some of the imperial decrees. And he went out to preach against the pagan festival that was taking place. And he was like we do when we go to Mayfest or when we go to um, 
Belshare in Asheville. That's what Timothy was doing. The crowd got angry and they beat him to death with clubs. That's what uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs says. A lot of this stuff we don't know for sure, but it's interesting. Um, but this is what's going on during this time. And Domitian reigned for about 15 years, 81 to 96 A.D. And sometime during this period, John was arrested and sent to the island of Patmos. We think it was around A.D. 95. And after Domitian died, he was killed by, he was assassinated by people in his own court. After he died, tradition says that John was released from Patmos, came back to Ephesus, and he lived out the rest of his days there. So the death of the emperor brought an ease to the persecution and allowed him to live out his days in Ephesus. And so it's believed that John wrote his epistles uh, uh, possibly after his release. Um, from Patmos. We don't know for sure, but Patmos is basically a small little island off the coast of modern-day Turkey. It's uh, only about 10 miles long and 6 miles wide, and it was a penal camp. It's where they sent people to do hard labor. So John, being an old man, obviously was put to work in the mines, and it wasn't just him sitting around doing nothing. When these visions came, he was sent to a penal camp and was probably put to hard labor. And it was during this time that Jesus Christ was revealed to John in an amazing way. Um, so that's a little bit of a background. John was given this revelation, and then this revelation was given to the churches. And um, it was then circulated uh, throughout, throughout, the, uh, throughout Asia Minor and throughout the, the ancient uh, realm of, of Christian churches. Now, when it came to Revelation being accepted as a part of the New Testament, it was very slow to be accepted by the quote-unquote church. And the reason for this is because of its apocalyptic character and the discussion of Jesus Christ's thousand-year reign that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. Now, nowhere else in the Scriptures is Jesus' reign as King over Israel and King over the world described in terms of a time limit. The millennial reign of Christ is all throughout the Old Testament. The book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, all of these things. But in Revelation 20, we're given a time frame. A thousand years. And a lot of people couldn't handle that. A lot of people today couldn't handle it. I had a brother that I preached with, a solid brother, who has more of a covenant theology perspective, this idea that the church has replaced Israel. And you know, that's, that stuff's wrong. Just plain wrong. It's not a reason we can't, cannot fellowship, but we began to discuss these things and he says, I just don't understand how you can build an entire doctrine of a millennial reign of Christ on one passage in the book of Revelation. I said, well, sir, how friend, how many passages do we need for it to be biblical truth? I mean, uh, how, you know, there's only one clear statement of the Trinity in the Bible. That's 1 John 5, 7. Father, Word, Holy Spirit, these three are one. Well, does that mean we can't believe the Trinity because it's only delineated one time very clearly? It's implied in many other places. But I said to him, read the Old Testament. The millennial reign of Christ is spoken of throughout all of the prophets. It's referred to in the Torah, in the writings, in the Psalms. All Revelation does is give us a time frame. So... That same discomfort with Revelation is what kept it from being accepted by the church. Uh, Orthodox groups that were actually going out and preaching the gospel and 
copying the Scriptures faithfully, they accepted it very early. I mean, if you look back over church history and you want to see how God preserved His Word, you won't find it in the Catholic Church. You won't find it necessarily in dead Protestant churches. You'll find that it's a history of those that were evangelical. In other words, they believed in sharing their faith and preaching it. It was preserved in groups that were persecuted for their faith. And oftentimes, it's a trail of blood. And this is the same thing in terms of accepting God's inspired writings. Um, uh, Early Christians often ignored Revelation. Some very prominent Christians in history like John Calvin and and, uh, Martin Luther were uncomfortable with the book of Revelation. Some people would think that because John Calvin was uncomfortable with it, we should be uncomfortable with it. I think that's ridiculous. I don't care what John Calvin thought about the book of Revelation, especially considering the importance with which uh, it is addressed to us. But um, it's kind of interesting that uh, in view of the clear exhortations we're giving in this book to hear and to understand what is being said, I find it interesting that it's one of the books, one of the most ignored books in all of the Bible. And it's got the most exhortation for us to listen and to read. It kind of sheds light on what Jesus said in Luke 18, when the Son of Man comes, will He even find faith on the earth? Nevertheless, I want to make it very clear that the authority, the inspiration, the inclusion of a book in the, in the Bible, it's not dependent upon man's acceptance. These things are not dependent upon an official recognition by some counsel or creed. The Holy Spirit is the author of God's words. He inspires them. The acceptance of the church, the preservation of these inspired writings, the use and the fruit of these inspired writings simply demonstrate and prove what God the Holy Spirit has already declared these to be. And so just because it took a while for the church in general to accept revelation as part of the New Testament doesn't mean... It's not the Word of God. The fact that the church did accept it is proof that it was what it claims to be. You see, God governs the inspiration of Scripture. Most of us believe that. We believe He inspired the Scriptures. Some people would say, well, only the original manuscripts are inspired, and then you know, when they got copied, mistakes came into it, this, that, and the other. Well... That makes no sense. If God inspires something, by necessity, He'll preserve it. In fact, I like to use uh, an old 1828 dictionary when I study the Scriptures by Noah Webster. And it really sheds some light on a lot of old words and things we don't use anymore. And it's amazing how many Scriptural allusions are in that first dictionary given to the American people. But in Noah Webster's dictionary, under the word providence which is a term that means that, that talks about God's governing of all things. He makes this comment in the definition. He says, He that acknowledges a creation and denies a providence involves himself in a palpable contradiction. I would say the same applies to the Scriptures. He that argues or believes in an inspiration by the Holy Ghost in the original writings, but denies a preservation by the Holy Ghost throughout history, involves himself in a palpable contradiction. Now this truth begs many questions and has a lot to say about Bible versions. We use the King James Bible in here and we do it for a reason. 
Not because we were raised that way or not because my daddy used it and his daddy used it and if it was good enough for Paul, it was good enough for me. None of that stuff. We use it because we believe in God's preservation and we can see that down through the history. Without preservation, there is no inspiration. And so this has direct uh, implication on the book of Re Revelation. Um, God governs the Scriptures. He, he inspires them. He preserves them. The faith, he also governs the faith and actions of the true body of Christ in accepting the authority of the Scriptures. And He governs the very history which demonstrates these things. So if we understand that God is sovereign and that He governs all these things, I don't know what the problem is. I don't know why the same professors and the same pastors who would say the Holy Spirit led men to put the right books in the canon would have a problem believing that the Holy Spirit led men to properly preserve those Scriptures. I don't get it. But that's uh, one of the great uh, paradoxes of the church is people can be so solid on some issues and so off base on others. And it really all boils down to failing to rightly divide the word of truth. But it is interesting, around A.D. 367, there's an ancient letter that the Bishop of Alexandria, his name was Athanasius, wrote to the churches. It was an Easter letter. And in this letter, he actually lists the same 27 book New Testament that we have today. So he lists the books of the New Testament and it's exactly what we have today. So this was in A.D. 367 and then 30 years later at a council of the Eastern and Western churches that came together to decide, you know, what, what do we believe? That um, this council of Carthage, it was uh, uh, defined and accepted that the consensus in the churches was a 27-book New Testament like we have today. Now, most people think, well, the church didn't you know, accept these books until almost 400 A.D. Well, no, they affirmed the consensus that already existed. And friends, a, consistence, a, consistent, a consensus isn't established overnight. It's something that's been established over a long period of time. So the declaration of the Council of Carthage implies that these books had been accepted for a long period of time. Now, I find it interesting with regard to Revelation that one of the ancient Greek scrolls that has a big part of the New Testament and it's kind of worshipped by a lot of the scholars and the preachers that love these modern Bible versions. It's a big scroll that the Vatican had in its possession for many years called the Codex Vaticanus. And it's uh, got all kinds of apocryphal writings and other uh, unscriptural books mixed in with it, but... It's the basis for most of your modern English Bible versions. So, you know, the verses that are missing in your NIV are missing in this big codex or this uh, ancient manuscript that was written around 350, 360 A.D. It's funny that in that codex, the book of Revelation is missing. It's not even a part of it. It's not even a part of the New Testament. The Shepherd of Hermas is. Some other book is. Revelation is missing. So, when you read an NIV Bible and you're finding all these differences, and then you begin to understand the manuscripts behind it, those are manuscripts that didn't even include the book of Revelation. I just find that interesting. I'm not here to talk about Bible versions today. I just find it very interesting. But Christians in the early church possessed, they collected Paul's letters, they collected these writings that showed through internal evidence that they were inspired by the Holy Ghost, because God's governing it all anyway. They collected these books and they were carrying around or they were in possession of 27 book New Testaments 
long before Athanasius. Long before this council at Carthage. And it's kind of the same as what happened in the Reformation. We all know about Martin Luther and Calvin and how God used them to pull people out of the Catholic Church. Well, long before Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door, on October 31st, 1517, there were Anabaptist groups and persecuted Christians throughout all of Europe sowing seeds of Reformation. And without that, there never would have been a Reformation. If it weren't for Christians taking the Gospel throughout the ancient world with New Testament writings that included Revelation, it never would have been declared to be a part of the Bible in the 4th century. So, we can rest assured that God, a sovereign God who preserves His Word, saw to it that Revelation concludes the Scripture, concludes the canon, fittingly so, a capstone of truth in terms of revealing Jesus Christ. We can be assured that it's God's Word because not only is it inspired, but it agrees with the rest of Scripture. It doesn't contradict Scripture. It was accepted by the early Christians. It was included in the canon and it's been preserved for us unto this day, nearly 2,000 years later. That's enough proof for me. So we're dealing with God's revelation of Jesus Christ in His glory. It's inspired, it's preserved, and it's important. So that's how we're going to study. And friends, that's all I could get out of the revelation of Jesus Christ. But uh, I hope that gives you a little background on the book. You know, it's important for us to understand who wrote a book and what context they were living in when they wrote it. It sheds an interesting light. I mean, John was living in days of apostasy. We're living in days of apostasy. So it can have the same meaning for us as it was meant to have for those seven churches. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there's three things before we begin to get into this book. I want you all as a church to understand. You all have a church constitution. You've organized yourselves as a church. You've declared what you believe in terms of your statement of faith. And all of you talked about this a long time ago. And I want to remind you of three aspects of your statement of faith that should govern us as we read this book. Not because we use our theology to interpret Scripture, but because we understand that Scripture has already um, given us our theology. And so we want to turn back around and remember why we believe these things and we'll see why we believe it as we look at the book of Revelation. There's three things that you guys have affirmed that you believe in this church and I want to uh, remind you of that. Well, maybe it might come out four. You believe that the Scriptures were given to the common man and that they can be interpreted literally. In other words, you can look at the Scriptures when the plain sense is common sense, there is no other sense. In other words, there's not this deep spiritual meaning that only certain people can understand. The Scriptures do have symbols, but I believe scriptural symbols are often defined in the context or defined elsewhere in Scripture. So we believe that the Scriptures, because they were given to the common man, they weren't even written in the high classical Greek in the New Testament. They were written in the poor man's language, in the common language, the Koine Greek. So they were given to the common man. So therefore, anybody can understand them with the help of the Holy Spirit. So because we believe in a literal, when I say literal, I mean we take the historical context into consideration, we take the grammar into consideration, and we take 
the literal meaning, what it says. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The literal sense is plain. There's no other way to heaven. There's no, nothing else to be said about that. Well, the way means the way to truth or this, that. No, Jesus is the only way. When God says it is impossible for God to lie, there in the book of Titus, the literal meaning is simple. God can't lie. He never lies. Never lies. So you guys, we, we've affirmed as a church, or you've affirmed as a church, that you approach the Scriptures in a plain sense, literal way. We need to remember that when we study the book of Revelation. Because people have tried to force all sorts of interpretations on there that avoid the simple, plain sense meaning. So remember that. Um, because we interpret the Scriptures literally in their historical context, our theology, by definition is what I would call dispensational. Now that word dispensation or dispensational is something that gets misinterpreted a lot of times and you know, people you know, have problems with it or misunderstand what dispensational theology is. Well, what is dispensational theology? Your, your constitution defines this. Because you interpret the Scriptures literally, you as a church body have affirmed that your theology is dispensational. That means you believe God has laid His plan out for us in an orderly, understandable fashion in the Scriptures. Therefore, a dispensational theology approaches the Scriptures literally. A dispensational theology understands that God has given us this revelation would believe that the chief end of all things is not the redemption of man, it's the glory of God. So a dispensational theology affirms the glory of God as the most important thing. A lot of people today think it's all about the redemption of man. And that's why their gospel message is man-centered. That's why their interpretation of the Scriptures is man-centered. And that's why they ignore the book of Revelation. Because the centerpiece is not man. It's God and Jesus Christ. So, when we apply this theology, or we, we come up with this theology because of what we see in the Scriptures, we need to remember that the purpose of Revelation is not to... Give, give believers a heaven for eternity. The purpose of that revelation is to glorify God. God is glorified through the redemption of men. He is glorified through the eternal state in which the believers live and reign with Him. But He's glorified by the judgment of the wicked. You know, when we go out and preach the gospel, my friends, we need to remember that when people mock and when they reject the gospel, God is glorified over all of that. Because in the day of judgment, when the excuses are made, and the accusations are thrown out. God knows that these folks heard the gospel. And none of those excuses will stand and God will be glorified. In fact, I've often said to folks, and it sounds a little harsh when they're mocking the gospel and they don't want to hear and they say all forms of blasphemy about Jesus Christ, I've often said, folks, you know, there's a day coming when God's going to judge you and He's going to cast you into a lake of fire for all eternity and the righteous will applaud the justice of God. Wow, how could you say it? Well, God exists to be glorified in all things or the centerpiece of scriptural revelation is His glory. So that's what a dispensational theology would affirm. That the scriptures are laid out in, in, in an orderly fashion that we can understand. That the centerpiece or the central theme is the glorification of God. And then thirdly, a dispensational theology would recognize that there is a distinction between God's plan and purpose for Israel as a nation and God's plan and purpose for the church, a called out people, both Jews and Gentiles, a mystery.
A lot of people would argue that the church is some sort of replacement for Israel. Israel rejected God, and therefore the promises made to the nation of Israel are spiritually applied to the church. That's called covenant theology or replacement theology. We will not approach the book of Revelation with those mis that misconstrued truth. You see, Israel is the adulterous wife of Jehovah. The church is the spotless virgin bride. How can it be the same? I mean, that simple truth right there shows you it cannot be the same. That doesn't mean that all Jewish people are saved. No, but God has a plan and purpose for the nation of Israel. And He will fulfill those things. Jesus Christ will reign as King of Israel in Jerusalem bodily on a throne. And He will govern the whole world from Jerusalem as the rightful heir in the lineage of David. And God will fulfill those promises. There's coming a day when Israel, like Paul on the road to Damascus, will wake up and realize that He's their Messiah. They're going to have to be brought to their bitter end to realize it. And we're going to see that here in the book of Revelation. But the church is a special program. You know, Israel rejected Jesus Christ. It happened there when Stephen preached to them. So God had a special program in history. The church is His special act in which He calls out of people, both Jews and Gentiles, out of their cultures, out of their idolatry, out of their false religion, and makes them a peculiar people. A people that crosses ethnic bounds, a people that crosses political boundaries, and uses them to take the gospel message to the ends of the world so that the Gentiles might receive the blessings given through Abraham. All in fulfillment of prophecy. Because we affirm a dispensational theology, we acknowledge those things. Now, that theology isn't built and then forced upon the Scriptures. It's the reading, the plain sense readings of the Scriptures that's given us that theology. And so we're going to remember those things as we read and study this book so that we can understand why we believe it. Why we believe it. We have affirmed, you have affirmed that you'll approach the Scriptures literally uh, as if written to the common man. You've affirmed that your theology is dispensational. And because of these things... Your theology is also what I would call premillennial. Because you approach the Scriptures as given to the common man, your theology is dispensational. Because your, your theology is dispensational, it's premillennial. What does that mean? Premillennial theology understands that this world is diving and down spiraling into sin and iniquity. And there's no other way that peace can be brought to earth unless Jesus Christ Himself physically and bodily returns to earth, splits the Mount of Olives, and sets up a kingdom. In other words, man cannot bring peace to earth. Post-millennial theology would interpret all of Revelation as spiritual and some kind of symbolic meaning, believing that it's the church that grows and grows and grows and gets better and better and better and ushers in that millennium through its own morality. We reject that. We believe that man is fallen and wicked and that the church, though there is a remnant body of Jesus Christ, the church by and large will apostatize, go down, 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 and down. And the only cure, the only remedy is Jesus Christ Himself. So, we're going to learn that and see that in the book of Revelation. We need to remember that. That we don't believe that the Jesus Christ's coming is... 
is, is, is fulfilled in the church getting bigger and better and taking over governments. We don't believe it. That's Catholic theology. You know, in fact, a lot of the reformers that in the Reformation held on to some Catholic traits, some traits of their Catholic mother. And when it comes to eschatology or the doctrine of end times, they never could let go of Catholic interpretation. And that's why a lot of these Protestant denominations would be post-millennial or amillennial in their approach to the Scriptures, that Christ's reign is not literal. We believe it is. Because of these things, your theology is also, because it's premillennial, I would argue that your theology is also uh, pre-tribulational. What does that mean? Because we believe that Jesus Christ will set up a kingdom literally in which He will fulfill all the promises of Israel, we therefore believe that the church is a special program not equal to Israel. And God, when God is finished with the church, at that time He will turn again to Israel, call out witnesses, and, and begin to uh, fulfill those promises which culminate in His second coming. So since the church is not Israel, since the church is not appointed to God's judgment and wrath, we believe that God will take out the church before the great majority of the events from Revelation chapter 4 onward take place. So these are aspects of our theology as a church that we've already affirmed. And the book of Revelation, I believe, will confirm them. So I'm not suggesting that we should take this and filter Revelation through it. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is that we remember we've affirmed these things and as we study the book of Revelation, let's be reminded why. Always ready for the Scripture to teach us. Maybe we'll find that some of this is wrong. I don't believe that. Maybe we will. And if we do, are we willing to change it? Are we willing to change our theology? I don't believe it's wrong because your theology wasn't built on some overnight uh, dream or vision. It was built upon your conviction from studying the Scriptures for years. And we talked about that for a long time. So I just want to remind you all of these things as we get into the book. I mean, this is a huge um, introduction here. And I've only gotten through one phrase. Um, but that being said, um, there's some characteristics of this book I just want us to also keep in mind that begin with verse 1 of chapter 1 and go all the way through chapter 22. One of those is that this book is apocalyptic. Very important. This is an apocalyptic book. It's dealing with the future, end times, the culmination of God's plan and purpose for the ages. It's not about the past. It's prophecy. That's what John calls it. It's about the culmination, the revealing of Christ, the bringing together of all things that God started in the Garden of Eden when He told Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman uh, would crush the head of the serpent. This is the bringing together of all that. So it's apocalyptic. There's other apocalyptic books in the Old Testament that are primarily concerned with the future from beginning to end. Does anybody know what one of those might be? Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Isaiah. It's another one toward the end. Zechariah. This is apocalyptic literature. In other words, it focuses on the culmination of all things. The revelation 
of the uh, conclusion of God's program. So that's what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with insignificant events or specific situations in history. We're dealing with things that will literally affect not only Israel, but the whole world. So we need to remember that. If that's the case, we need to read it and understand it. Um, the uh, book of uh, Revelation is apocalyptic, but it's based upon apocalyptic truth that already existed in the Old Testament. So we can't, can't deny that. Revelation is not something new. It's based upon the uh, apocalyptic truth already revealed in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, Daniel. Some, some of those writings had, had been written over you know, a thousand years earlier. Some of the Psalms, things like that. So it's based upon that, and therefore it cannot be properly understood apart from Old Testament prophecy relating to Israel in the day of the Lord. We cannot understand Revelation outside of what's already been revealed in terms of the apocalypse. So we have to remember that. Revelation cannot be interpreted by itself just like no Scripture can be interpreted by itself. The Bible tells us in Timothy to study to show ourselves approved to God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Friends, the reason people get in trouble with misinterpreting the book of Revelation and other passages in the Scriptures is because they fail to see the context and they fail to interpret it in light of Scripture. If Revelation says something that has several possible interpretations, but the Bible elsewhere says something that's very clear, then we're going to understand what the proper interpretation is. So we cannot deny the relationship, particularly to the book of Daniel. Okay? The book of Daniel is written about the last days in terms of the nation of Israel. Revelation is written about the last days in terms of the whole world. They go together. They don't contradict themselves. Something else we need to remember is that Revelation is not man-centered, it's Christ-centered. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not about us. It's not about the church. In fact, after Revelation 4, the church is not mentioned again till the end of the book. That's a strange absence considering what's going on on the earth at that time. And I'll, we'll, we'll see why. Uh, we'll see why. This is not a prophetic program. It's not some symbolic uh, reference to a historical period of time. It is a Christ-centered Painting. It's an artist rendering of Jesus Christ. And that artist is God. Christ-centered. It's all about Jesus Christ, my friends. Our faith is all about Jesus Christ. It's not about church attendance. It's not about being a good person. It's not about earning favor with God through our merit. It's about Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection. And His reigning and ruling that will happen for all eternity. In fact, I would argue that the subject matter of the book of Revelation is an integral part of the gospel message. If we're preaching the gospel and we deny the return of Christ to set up a kingdom, I believe it's incomplete. Because it all goes together. When Paul preached to the, the Greeks at Mars Hill, he preached the gospel and he said, because God hath ordained a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, and He proved it by raising Him from the dead, Jesus Christ. That was a part of Paul's preaching. It should be a part of ours. So if the gospel message inevitably involves the coming of Christ, again, then we need to understand what the Scriptures have to say about that coming. 
The book of Revelation is an open book. What do I mean by that? And at the end of the book, in chapter 22, verse 10, John was told, seal not this prophecy. Don't seal it up. It's open. It needs to be revealed. Don't seal it up. But in Daniel, written many years before in chapter 12, Daniel was told to seal the book until the time of the end. Revelation is open. And Revelation is the time of the end. And Daniel can only be properly understood in view of Revelation and vice versa. And that's why the prophet was told to seal the book until the time of the end. Now it's open because Revelation is open. We can understand it. We can be prepared. We can be edified. In fact, I would say that the books of Daniel and Revelation are so inextricably tied together that one cannot be understood without the other. I would encourage you in your daily devotional time as we study Revelation to read through the book of Daniel time and time again. Revelation is not a collection of enigmatic prophecies like the Quran. The Quran's got these prophecies and statements that can be interpreted a thousand different ways and nobody really knows what it means and it's a mystery. That's not the Bible, number one. It's not biblical prophecy and it's not the book of Revelation. It's a reasonable unveiling of Christ in His glory and the culmination of God's plan and purpose of the ages. It fittingly closes the canon of Scripture. You see, Revelation is such a perfect closing to the Scriptures. How could anyone add to the Scriptures after that? Many have tried. Some, some believe that one of the letters Martin Luther King wrote while he was in prison should be added to the New Testament. you believe that? There were those that, 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 that wanted that. But nothing can add to what Revelation fittingly closes. An open book that closes God's special revelation to man in the Scriptures. Revelation, I'm almost... I'm not going to actually get in the text today, but let me finish this. Revelation is also symbolic. It has a literal meaning, but we cannot deny the presence of symbols. In fact, it says here in verse 2 that this revelation was sent and signified by God's angel to John, God's servant. Signified means that it possesses a symbolic character and uses signs and symbols. But friends, we shouldn't be afraid of signs and symbols. They are often explained right in the biblical text. If they're left unexplained, they're explained elsewhere in the biblical text. And there's plenty of Old Testament parallels that will shed understanding on these symbols. And symbols always speak of reality. If they didn't speak of reality, then they would make no sense. If you remember Peter's vision in Acts 10, in which God was teaching him that He was calling both Jews and Gentiles, that the Gentiles were not unclean, but they were partakers of the, the Abrahamic covenant. What did God use as a symbol to teach Peter that? Animals. Animals, food, meat. He told Peter, rise and eat. I can't eat anything unclean. Well, some people would say, well, that vision had nothing to do with food. Well, if it had nothing to do with food, even though that wasn't the primary purpose, then the symbol has no meaning. God was also saying, as it was confirmed later in 1 Timothy, that every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving and prayer. Because God is sanctified. So it does have something to say about food, even though that's not the primary meaning. But symbols speak of reality. In fact, the American flag has 13 stripes. That's a symbol. Who knows what that's a symbol of? 13 colonies. 
So there's no way to divorce the actual symbol from the meaning. The star is a symbol of the states. They're, they're inextricably tied in the flag. There's nothing confusing about it. It makes sense. So symbols speak of reality. And we shouldn't be afraid of them. And we'll find that most of the symbolic language is explained right here in the text, if not here in Old Testament parallels. Revelation is different from Daniel in that it's universal. Daniel focuses on God's dealing with Israel in the last days. Revelation focuses on God's dealing with the entire world in the last days. Daniel was primarily related to the Jewish people. Revelation primarily relates to the Gentiles. It covers the whole world. No one is exempt. Won't be a local return of Jesus Christ. Every eye will see Him on that day. It's universal. And then finally, it's climactic. And this kind of refers back to the apocalyptic character. It's the climax and fulfillment of what began in Genesis. It's completed in Revelation. It's a return to an unblemished and untainted creation where God sees that it is good. Thus, for the edification, encouragement, and comfort of the church, thus it is for us, our edification, encouragement, and comfort as we live in a world that's wicked. As we live in it, but are not of it. It is there for us. We ought to love this book and not avoid it. Shame on the church for avoiding this book. We ought to love it. Especially in view of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8. He talks about his day had come. He knew his martyrdom was here. And he told Timothy that he was looking forward to receiving a crown of righteousness that God had reserved for him, but not for him only. Also for those that loved his appearing. There's a crown reserved for those who love the revelation or appearing of Jesus Christ and His glory. And in view of that, we ought to love this book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's just an introduction, my friends. I want to talk about next week, there are different ways people interpret this book. There are basically four different ways people interpret this book. Three of them, in my opinion, are ridiculous. One of them is the plain sense way. But I want to get in that today, but I want you to have this framework as we begin to study um, the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John. Because I believe the time is at hand. I believe we're nearing those days when God will wrap up His program with the church and then He'll turn to fulfill Daniel's 70th week and culminate His plan and purpose with the Jews and pour out His judgment upon the earth and usher in the reign of Christ and the eternal state. And those are things for which we can lift up our heads and rejoice knowing that it is our redemption. So when the world throws everything at you, it does. You know, considering the state of society here, you know, the government's talking about taking away our guns and... and uh, the tax rates are going up and people are shooting up the schools and all the politicians are corrupt. That shouldn't keep us from loving the appearing of Christ. The day is going to come, Christian, when that's going to be all we have to hold on to. We're going to lose our homes if the Lord tarries. We're going to lose our funds. Our dollar's not going to be worth anything. And if we're holding on to these things, we're going to find ourselves in big trouble. 
But if we just see these things as a means to live in the world and not be of it, as a means to share the gospel and we're looking to Christ, these other things should not phase us. It shouldn't phase us when Obama gets elected to a second term. It shouldn't phase us. It shouldn't change anything. It shouldn't phase us when if a government official shows up at my door and says, give me your guns. It shouldn't phase me. And we want, that's why this uh, study is so timely. So, we got through the first phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. I promise you that it won't be like that every time. There are actually entire chapters we'll be able to cover in a Sunday. But I hope that was fruitful for your understanding, and we'll just pick up next week, uh, because I didn't even finish my lesson for today, so that'll make next week a little bit easier. Again, these are going to be online for you to go back and study and listen to, and if you miss a Sunday, don't, don't worry about it. You can go pick it back up and listen to it online. So thank you. Why don't we close in prayer? I know we got food waiting, and I'll just